Our scripture reading today comes from Genesis 18, verses 1 to 15 in the NIV. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of the Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them, and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat, so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way, now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah. Quick, he said. Get three sieves of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then bought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set them before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. Where is your wife Sarah? they asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which she was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself, and she thought, After I am worn out, and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Will I really have a child now that I am old? Is everything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, Yes, you did laugh. In Hebrews 11 we read, And by faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. In the story of Sarai, uh, there are many truths to be found about our faith. Truths that impact how and what we Christians believe. As well as truths that kick our faith into action. Today we're going to tell the story of Sarai, and in doing so, we will find out one of these truths and see how we should live in response. And a more complicated figure to grapple with, I think it would be pretty hard to find. We heard in the passage read today that when God promised Sarah a child, she laughed. An odd response, but... Stick with me, because I suspect after making our way through her story, and for many of us, the lives that we've lived might bring us to the same place, but I think that we're all going to find that we would have done much the same thing if we were in her place. Sarai, for that's her name when the story begins, it means princess. She was born in the land of Ur, which would be kind of in the north of Iraq today. She was born to a large family. Her father, as was typical at the time, had multiple wives, and along with them, multiple children. 
And while many of them are named, there is really only one who truly comes into our story today. And his name was Abram, a son from a different mother. Now, this was a time that was very unlike ours today. A time when people refrained from killing those around them, not so much because they thought it was wrong, but instead simply because there was always that fear of retribution. In a world like that, it was tough to live truly free. It could be done, but you had to keep your distance from those around you. You had to be smart and quick, and you had to be hard and strategic and often morally questionable just to get by. And that was just if you were a man. To be a woman at this time was still much worse, if for no other reason, because you often had to live at the business end of all of that. And so it was that Sarai, likely at quite a young age, was married to her half-brother, something not terribly uncommon at that time. We're not told much about their relationship in the early years, but we know she was beautiful, a blessing and a curse in those days. But at an untold age, likely a number of decades later, Sarai, Abram, her father, and their nephew, a self-seeking but not entirely bad young man named Lot, all decided to pack up and they moved from their home in Ur to a land named Haran. And there her life changed in two major ways. First we read Sarah's father died. A difficult blow to take at the best of times, but... For a girl of whom the only thing that we know about her relationship with her dad is that he named her princess, I can't help but think that it might have been a big blow. But I suspect it would have been secondary to the next thing that made her life harder still. For one day we read the Lord entered into her story. He appeared to Abram and told him to pick up his household and move to the land of Canaan. There God said he would bless Abram to the point that his descendants would in time become a great nation, a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. We're not given much of a glimpse into Sarai's mind when she hears that news, but I suspect it met her with quite a lot of concern. Likely not because she found out that her husband was talking to God. At that time, claiming you talked to God was not uncommon in the slightest, Although what makes this a bigger deal is is that it's actually true. But instead, she would have been concerned because of this. Sarai couldn't have children. We're told that about her as she enters the story. But by this point, her and Abram had been together for years and still no children to call her own. In a time when it was expected that you never really stopped having children until the day you either couldn't, but more likely the day you died, Abram and Sarai had none. In a time when the world viewed how blessed you were by the gods, primarily by the number of children you had, Abram and Sarai had none. And so to understand how Sarai would have taken this news, remember that There is this pressure on her, this feeling of how she is not living up to what is expected of her, this feeling that the gods are against you because no matter how hard they tried, nothing. 
And where you may think that if this was the case, that surely God's words would have met her well. Don't forget again that this was a time when taking multiple wives or lovers for the express purpose of having children was very much so the norm. That there is no indication that Abram had done that up until this point is really surprising enough, but that a God was now saying Abram would have a nation of descendants. What would that mean for her who hadn't born any children so far? And it's with this playing in Sarai's mind that the whole family, Abram, Lot, and all of their servants and all their flocks and herds, packed up into a decent-sized caravan and all left for the land of Canaan, a walk that would have taken days if not months in the Middle Eastern heat. And when you would hope that Sarai's apprehensions would have been put to rest when they had finally arrived, we're told the first thing that happens in the story after they get to their new home is that there is a great famine in the land, an event that in those days would have been assumed to be purely the result of the anger of the gods. And so, not a great start in Canaan to say the least. And so to avoid starvation, the whole gang packs up again and flees to Egypt in the south. It's around the era of Abram that the Egyptian empire was at its most significant, the height of the Bronze Age. And in those days when Egypt knew full power, there was the pharaoh, and he was unlike the other kings of earth. For the pharaohs from the day that they were born, uh, were understood by them and their subjects as well to be gods on earth. Gods that were thought to be able to command the tides. Gods who were thought to be able to control the forces of the world. What matter did the life and well-being of anyone have to a man like that? And so as Abram brought his entire family into this land in search of food, Imagine how Sarai felt when the eyes of the servants of exactly this same pharaoh fell upon her. No woman in the history of time has ever been or will ever be an object, but that truth of being made in the image of God has never stopped others from trying to force that fate on them all the same. And so you can imagine Sarah's skin beginning to crawl as they gazed at her just a creeping, nearly unbearable feeling. And then there was also something else compounding everything in her mind, squishing her heart even further still. Because shortly before they arrived, we were told that Abram approached his wife with a proposition. How about while we're here, we play down the fact that we're married instead, simply focus on being siblings instead. That why, if the Egyptians find you attractive, at least they won't kill me. Truly, he was as brave a man as has ever lived. How would you deal with that? Even beyond the betrayal of your husband, something not to be looked over in the slightest, but Sarah was only in Egypt in the first place in her mind because God sent a famine in the land that was meant to be blessed. How do you begin to deal with that? And so we're told that nearly immediately, Sarah, with no resistance from her husband, the man of whom in the whole world of endless dangers was supposed to be the one to protect her from exactly this kind of thing, she was scooped up and placed into the Pharaoh's harem. Uh, 
and there she stayed until a plague sent by God revealed the truth of her relationship to her husband and she was freed. Not long after, the whole caravan was rightfully expelled from Egypt and there was new gifts and possessions in tow to help smooth the the whole eh, God is angry at them thing out including a brand new maidservant named Hagar, who we're going to talk about in just a bit. And I assume the marriage of Abram and Sarai took a very different tone following that day. But it was not long after the caravan returned to Canaan that Sarai suffered another knock. Lot's servants and Abram's were coming to blows, we're told, and so the decision was made for Lot, together with his wife and two young daughters by this point, to split ways from Abram, leaving Sarai completely void of family, save one husband that you have to suspect she was not on the best of terms with. But even apart from her nephew and his wife departing, there's there's something about the presence of children especially when they come to be to you like family that is it's painful to be ripped from especially when you're longing for your own following lots leaving there is a brief moment when it seems possible that the two groups might reconcile lot gets himself into a scrape that abram bails him out of but it is not to be then there is just her and the loneliness she can't fill. And then God enters the story again. He appears before Abram in a vision, and he once again promises that your children will be numerous beyond the stars. More than that, God even tells Abram that the salvation of the world will come from his descendants, and to show this to be true, he even goes so far as to make a covenant with him, a bond that in those days could not be broken except on pain of death. This he even shows by giving Abram and Sarai new names. From that day on, they would be known as Abraham and Sarah to show that they are now bound by covenant to God. A wonderful sign to be sure, but still nothing to assure Sarah that what she is so longing for will come to be. And that brings us to the story that over the years has come to define who Sarah is, often profoundly unfairly. This is the story immediately preceding our passage from today. The story of Sarah and the maidservant picked up in Egypt, Hagar. Time has passed following the covenant that Abram made with God, and still Sarah has no children. From everything he has gone over, I think it's fair to say that Sarah almost certainly has a a guarded relationship with both her husband, but but more, more importantly with God. But that does not for a moment mean that there is no relationship there, just it's complicated. From the beginning of her life, as we have seen, whenever God has entered into Sarah's story, it has been either to promise something that has either not yet come to pass or that may have seen like some kind of a threat, as she would have taken the promise of her husband having future descendants. Or it would have been for the cause of causing her significant pain, as she would have understood the famine that ended her and her family in Egypt. 
How Sarah would have understood God based on what we know from what we're told in the Bible. It would have been that his presence served to take her away from her home time and again to bring her into uncertainty. To say that Sarah would have had a guarded relationship with God, it's an obvious point to take away from her story if you look at everything that's happened to her in her life up till this point. But this is not at all to say that it's been all bad either. For what was the situation that caused her being saved from Egypt to begin with, and which ended with her husband being gifted flocks of animals and recompense. It was a plague that we are told cleared up when she was exposed and set free. So how could that have come from anything except the work of God? That God was there, Sarah would have had no doubt of that. That God had her husband in his plans, there was no doubt about that either. But what in Sarah's life would have made her feel even slightly important in God's eyes? Even slightly that she was anything more than, I don't know, is there a term for feeling like you're the side character in someone else's story? And to my reckoning, it should be with this in our minds that we enter into the story of Sarah and Hagar. God has promised her husband children. Sarah is getting old and she has none. In her life, her father had multiple wives with multiple offsprings. In her life, she was a part of the harem of Pharaoh, of whom the same could be said. If God was promising Abraham children... Sarah did know how that could be done, even if she couldn't have kids herself. In Sarah's mind, she was going to make sure God used her to provide her husband with his heirs one way or the other. That's what this story is about. And so Sarah approached her husband to tell him the plan that she had devised. My Egyptian maidservant is young. You could have children through her, she would have said. At no point are we told that Hagar has a choice in this. It was a tough world for women after all. We are not told how long Abraham deliberates on this proposal either. Simply that he agrees. And soon Hagar is with child. Insultingly soon. And near immediately, Sarah, we read, is filled with jealousy, because who wouldn't be following all that? Who wouldn't be following a life where that all has happened? And then we are told that this jealousy gives way to the kind of abuse that causes Hagar to flee in fear of her life. No small feat in an era when servants and slaves are treated as objects to begin with. When Hagar is in hiding, we read God comes to her and tells her that her child will in fact not be the one of whom the descendants of Abraham changed the world, but also he will be protected and she will be as well. But imagine how that news would have met Sarah, that after all that she did to Hagar, all the pain that she had caused the both of them, it didn't even accomplish what she wanted it to. Imagine how she felt. 
What Sarah did here to Hagar was wrong. There is no part of us that should wonder that. But wounds learned over a lifetime are slow to heal, and Sarah should have been stood up to by her husband, but she wasn't. It isn't surprising that she acted the way she did. But it's following this story where we arrive at our passage today. Three mysterious men visit Abraham, we're told. Visitors who we are to understand in time to be divine. And where before the promises of God were purely for Abraham, this time after all of that, it's different. Now they are for Sarah as well. A child you will have in a year's time, they say, and faintly in the distance we're told, having heard the strangers, Sarah laughs. I asked you in the beginning, if you were in Sarah's shoes, do you think you would have done the same? Do you think you would have laughed at God? She was old at this point, well beyond childbearing age, we're told. She had since resigned herself to the fact that she was not important to her husband's story. And she had a life that seemed to back that up. What in the story up until now would let her for even a moment think that this was going to happen, even if God promised it? So I ask you, in your heart of hearts, would you have laughed too? If you were Sarah, would you have done the same? The rest of Sarah's life is in rapid succession from this moment on. A lot happens, but she is not a major part of most of it. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. Her husband pulls the same she is my sister bit on yet another king, this one closer to home. Gross, but also girl be like over 90 at this point, so there's a certain amount of impressive in that. And finally, not long after that, she has her son. A boy named Isaac, with eyes wide like the stars. And while you would want to say that Isaac changes everything in her life, um, Sarah and Hagar and her son are run out of camp not too long after Isaac is born. Sarah is the culprit on that one. Then comes the story of Abraham almost sacrificing Isaac, a tale for a different time, but one that... I can't imagine sat very well with Sarah. And then, after over 120 years on this earth, she passes on, leaving behind a husband and son to mourn her. And many generations later, through her descendants, a man would be born. Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. In the life of Sarah... I told you when we began, we can learn many truths about our Christian faith. And while each of them have their value, the one I want to take from today is this. Sarah was not forgotten. You are not forgotten. For vast swaths of time in Sarah's life to say she felt alone, I think would be an understatement. The world seemed to sweep her along like she meant nothing. 
Her husband and nephew at times straight up abandoned her all her life. The one thing that she wanted more than anything else was kept from, from her until right at the end. It all weighed on her to the point that she felt the need to do the one thing that would hurt her more than anything else in order so that she could do God's job for him. Something that gnawed at her to the point that she couldn't keep herself from trying to destroy that very promise of God that she thought that she had a hand in bringing. But God didn't forget her, we see in the end. Do we wish that he would have filled her in on what was going on nearer the beginning of the story? I mean, absolutely. It, it seems cruel to us that he didn't. We have no idea why he didn't. And in the end, we are all just left with when it comes to wondering why is that the case? The hope that someday God will tell us himself and that he will be with us in our suffering until then. I know that since this is how Isaac was born, there is no doubt to us that it is God that brought Israel into being, but but surely Sarah could have been filled in sooner than she was. But was she forgotten by God? No. And so, as you look to put your faith into action, remembering the story of Sarah, this is the thing I want you to remember. You are not forgotten. Because God doesn't forget us. Because when you know you are remembered by God, that has a way of giving us confidence when we follow Christ nearer and nearer the end. When you know that you are remembered by God, that has a way of giving us that next step when we had nothing in us to take it before. It makes the pain of our lives in some way matter. It doesn't erase it or make it better. But at least it was going somewhere. You are not forgotten. The story of Sarah tells that about our faith. God does not forget his own. God is with us too.